Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And with us today in the studio is Liz Herbert, VP and Principal Analyst at Forrester, to discuss the real challenges associated with operational systems. Welcome, Liz. Thanks. Happy to be here. We've had a lot of people on talking about sort of the next phase of technology, automation, AI, the things that are catching a lot of people's attention. Underneath those waters sits these operational systems, which I know you're you're spending a lot of time with. What's happening with the operational systems that makes it an important consideration? A lot of the clients that we're working with, they're thinking about how can they improve the customer experience, and they're driving towards these new digital business models. And oftentimes what that means is that they're thinking about systems that touch customers, mobile apps, websites, retail experiences. But what many companies are now starting to find out as we get further along in these digital transformations is that they're hindered and sometimes can completely fail if they don't address the operational technology and make that agile as well. So, for example, if you think about a retail experience, if if you don't know where your inventory is, if you don't know about logistics, how you ship the inventory from one location to the next and get it to the customer fast, that will destroy your customer experience and it will limit your ability to succeed in these new digital business models. So you think of a retailer who's going to invest in like a smart mirror so someone can try something on. Well, they still need to buy that. They still need to receive it. And ultimately, though the mirror might be cool, that customer will be horribly disappointed if they can't get their product at all or in a reasonable amount of time. Right. So there's a term of technical debt and sort of associated data debt, meaning that some of these systems haven't been sufficiently modernized or they're, they're not really ready to go at the kind of pace that the business needs to go at, and that's holding it back. Is that sort of the, the basis of this argument, is that there's there's an anchor on the business? There's a huge anchor on the business. So for a lot of companies, uh, they're held back in two ways with technical debt. One way is that their systems are archaic, so they can't adapt to the new needs of the business. Uh, they may need a different way of doing accounting to enable a subscription-based business. They may need a more flexible system for their employees to be able to serve the new customer needs. So that holds them back, the lack of agility. But the second way that this technical debt is holding companies back is it's a waste of money. There are companies who are spending hundreds of millions of dollars on keeping these systems up and running, and they've over-customized them to such a great degree that they're not really able to do the innovation that they need and yet they're spending a ton of money on those systems. So so really two negative effects from all the technical debt. It seems a bit paralyzing, though, right? So given those two scenarios, I mean, uh, one firm could be dealing with both of those scenarios, I assume. What What are the conversations to start getting out of that technical debt? So a huge uh, focus of technical debt is modernization, uh, and that can take different forms. But effectively, for a lot of companies, they realize that they need to completely eliminate the old systems and start fresh. Um, The cloud has been a big part of that as well. Now, that can take different forms. It can be a full software as a service. For example, you see a lot of companies replacing their ERPs with a modern software as a service alternative. Um, Other companies, they're not necessarily ready to throw everything completely away, but they're still looking at ways that they can modernize it. So microservices enabling some of the older technology, shrinking the core and surrounding it with more flexible applications around the fringes uh, is another approach. But that's the key is how can we really modernize those old systems? And some want to do it dramatically. Um, For example, there was a company that I did a panel with at a conference where they basically walled off the old IT and they're starting totally fresh. Other companies, they can't really operate with that level of risk. So they're looking at more incremental steps to modernization. 
If you look at the, some, some of the ones you said, inventory systems, there's the operational systems for airlines in terms of scheduling, maintenance, and all those different things. And then you said there's a lot of customization. Customization can be a reflection of how business does its workflow. So can they decustomize the business without changing the way the business works? I mean, it's, it's not just a technical question at that point in time. There's an operational question sitting front and center in this mix as well, I assume. Totally. So a lot of companies, they've customized for the wrong reasons and in the places that don't differentiate the business. And that's one of the fundamental questions that we see clients are struggling with. So, for example, if you think of CRM systems, uh, most companies, they're managing sales, they're managing marketing, they're managing uh, managerial reports around sales forecasts, et cetera. A lot of companies historically have customized those systems in ways that don't really make sense. And then what's happening is as there is new innovation like AI for better um, forecasting or better routing of your salespeople who are going out on customer visits, uh, companies can't take advantage of those new innovations because of that heavy customization that they've done in the past. And, and the real question is what customization is needed. So yes, every business needs some amount of customization for the what makes them them. But in a lot of these areas like finance, like HR, like CRM applications, there's less of that needed than what some companies have pursued in the last couple of decades. So in, in terms of addressing the debt, the, do they have to have a formal work stream associated with simplification? Absolutely. And, you know, some companies, they're approaching this in a totally new way, which is the old way that companies would invest in an ERP upgrade or a CRM upgrade. They'd usually do some kind of list of functional requirements many times grounded in what they had in the past. Um, and nowadays, companies uh, who are on the leading edge, they're really thinking very differently about this. They're oftentimes looking at a next generation system and asking the question, what doesn't work for us, rather than spending all that time listing out every functional requirement. So for example, if you look at some of our clients who move to systems like Salesforce or Workday or some of the newer SAP and Oracle tools, they're really starting from the point of a demo and letting their users see it and experience it and imagine it rather than spend all this time working on Excel spreadsheets, listing out the 500 requirements that they think they need. Behind every customization, arguably, is a human being that made a decision that has some vested interest in that decision. So ironically, it's not a sterile conversation. It's an emotional conversation. And, and it might be true that I've been in meetings where people have been sort of shockingly enthusiastic about these items. Passionate, if you will. Passionate. Um, rationally passionate, but mm -hmm. passionate nonetheless. H how are the CIOs and business people taking on the human equation because this is not strictly a tech question. Totally. Well, uh, if you're lucky, then the people who made those decisions are already retired. <laughs> and for, Let's pretend they're still there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a hard situation. I, I'm thinking of an insurance company that I was working with who was making the decision to go to Salesforce. And they were all in. They were really gung-ho on moving forward. They were all approaching this in a very new way. And I actually pulled aside one of the team members that I knew and asked them, you know, how did, how did we get here? And they said, well, our CEO has made it clear that to launch our new business lines and to be able to move our insurance business into the modern world, this is absolutely the way to go and that any detractor is not going to work at the company. And so, you know, there are some cultural changes that can happen from the top um, that really emphasize like, sure, your customization is important, but what's more important is that we have a highly innovative system that we can continue to adapt so that we don't go out of business. 
and some of those, you know, especially when you get the executive sponsorship, um, those kinds of cultural conversations can help a lot. Um, and also sometimes exciting people about the what's new and what's next. We see more and more companies investing in design thinking or uh, customer journey mapping where they can you know, really start to see things in a different way and start to get out of that thinking of, well, but we used to do this and we need this feature because we used to do that. Um, in some extremes, you know, the feature truly isn't needed when you move into the modern system, right? A lot of these customizations, there's there's stopgaps because of something that was broken in the older systems and, and they wouldn't really be relevant in the future. It's like a set of hacks at that point in time. Exactly. So you mentioned insurance. I mean, if you go to an insurance firm, key in their strategy is looking hard at underwriting and looking hard at claims because of the desire to modernize the product, modernize the experience, and very much so to reduce the cost, especially as we look towards the economy of the next 12 months. So these are not just technical priorities. These can be big corporate priorities. Almost every time, they're huge corporate priorities. I think that's what so many of the companies who think about digital don't fully link to is that it's not just the insurance claim system, it's the operational systems in every industry absolutely linked to that revenue growth and that customer experience that is the corporate vision. Um, and sometimes you see, you know, they're not as much the shiny objects, so they don't get as much attention, but in reality, they can be even more important. Um, and for a lot of companies, going back to the idea of technical debt, if they can't modernize, they can't take advantage of the newer investments in things like artificial intelligence and automation that are necessary in an industry, in addition to the fact that their systems are just slower moving and they can't move them themselves. They're not consuming all of that innovation that's coming from the outside. So it's sort of a double whammy against them. So what's the politics of this? I'm, I'm a CIO. I've budgeted for years and years and years against these systems. The theory of the case is that they're healthy because I put some meaningful dollars behind them. I'm being tasked to go into the digital age. I'm tasked to look at new things like AI, as you mentioned, or different forms of automation. And here I come with a big budget request to go back and look at these systems and bring them forward, not for the purposes of AI, but just to get them so that I have a better platform to go. What's the politics of that as it looks like, as you look at like things like budgeting? So it can be very difficult. Um, in fact, we have an upcoming forum in Chicago where we are going to have some content around how do you make that business case and, and why it really is a CEO-level decision to make the right investments in technology. Um, a lot of times companies, they're making decisions with too much consideration for sunk costs. Uh, the fact that you just finished rolling out a legacy system that doesn't support the future business is an emotional decision, and that often gets in the way, but it's not necessarily the right decision for the business going forward. And so, you know, leading executives, whether it's a CIO or other, have to separate, you know, the sunk cost decisions that were right at a point in time, but may not be the right way forward. Um, but we also see that there are uh, ways that you can alleviate some of the cost burden too. Like there are vendors out there who are selling as software as a service or cloud. So the new investment is incremental. You're not buying hundreds of millions of dollars of licenses like you had to do in the past. So that can help. And there are vendors, especially coming from the services world, who can offer these like self-funding models. So there's a variety of outsourcers. HCL is one example, uh, where what they can do is they can get you into an outsourcing contract, if, if that's something your company's interested in, and they can self-fund the modernization of the technology. More and more you see outsourcers are doing that so that the company is effectively paying this fixed management fee as a managed service, but the provider is working to modernize all of that legacy tech under the covers. I thought you were going to go from a, politi like a political perspective. 
if, say, another executive, like a chief digital officer is in charge of innovations and driving a new business model forward and the CIO is taking care of the back office systems, sort of the tension there is like, who's running point and does this CDO tell the CIO to do something? Do they even understand that that would be a requirement for them to implement new tech at the front end or customer-facing systems? Is that a dynamic that you're seeing out in the world today? Totally. And I, I see it stems from this idea that the CIO is is the legacy back office and responsible for that rather than more of a vision that the back office is a fundamental way that you're enabling the new business. And so for some companies, uh, it's about recognizing how linked these are. Um, some CDOs come from more of an IT background and some don't. Um, so that that's one factor that's individual by company. Um, but what we see really is that somebody who's not focused on the link to the legacy probably won't succeed. So uh, hopefully as more time passes and there's more examples like this and more awareness of this, those CDOs will be more inclined to work with the CIO. Um, but I'll give a simple example. There was a utility client who had a great vision. They wanted to have a, a mobile app and a new customer experience, a lot more proactive data for the consumer. <clears throat> but they were still running on these legacy ERP systems. And so when they wanted to do things like simple alerts, they really weren't able to do it. So business had worked up this great vision, not realizing how constrained they were by the legacy IT. And that's a simple example, but there's examples like that in every industry that can really change the game. I also think, though, for the CIOs, uh, one of the challenges we see is some of them are archaic in their thinking. So if you're a CIO who's constantly resisting everything new, saying how, well, we can't move to these new technologies, they're not ready. Uh, for example, we had a CIO at a large financial services client we worked with where they said they couldn't really move to the cloud because of the performance. Well, by the way, their own system's performance was running far lower than what the cloud vendors were promising. So it wasn't necessarily even a legitimate argument. But if you have a CIO who's still operating like that, sort of either territorial or putting up roadblocks for these new areas, then that makes it hard. So if you're a CIO who's listening to this, you know, that that's the big advice, right, is you have to move yourself into the modern era um, and not be perceived as a blocker. In some of these systems, it's, it may not be the CIO, but it's actually the tech being managed in the business because they're so tied to the business. So how does it work when if I'm the enterprise architect and I have these, these operational systems strewn across the business, extraordinarily linked and maybe in different different stages of modernization or lack of modernization. How, how does it work architecturally if I have that division of problem across business and tech and all those pieces? So this is one of the biggest problems that's cropped up in the last decade. So these SaaS vendors, by design, they go out with these easy-to-use systems. They sell them to CMOs or other line-of-business <laughs> executives. You said that in a very kind of <laughs> bad but, way. <laughs> but what's happened to a lot of companies is they have hundreds or even thousands of SaaS solutions that came in totally under the radar screen. Um, so one of the first steps in getting a handle on all this is getting a handle around what exactly has been bought and figuring out if it's really needed. So, like, we do a lot of work as Forrester with sourcing and vendor management executives. They have a role to play. The architects have a role to play. Um, but one of the steps uh, that we've been talking about in some of the research we do on my team around the future of software uh, is how can you have more of a strategic vendor or set of vendors in your core and then simplify the so-called best of breed solutions that you want to use around that. Because what you find is a lot of times line of business just picked something totally in absence of what the company's doing. 
regardless of what developer skills you have, regardless of what overall architectural strategy you have. Um, and so pulling that back together can be really helpful. And a lot of times business doesn't really care. Um, there was a professional services firm who had come to us and there some of their executives had gone out and bought storage systems like Box, Dropbox, and there was no... It was just chaos because there was no one that they bought. They didn't really care which one. They would have used They anyone. just wanted one. Yeah. Exactly. So, mm -hmm. you know, having more of a strategy around that. And then um, similar to the comments I made about the CIO, if you're in architecture or sourcing and vendor management, a lot of it is how can you make it easier for business to research, find, and buy the right applications so that you don't let them keep going down the path. Why are they doing that in the first place? They're probably frustrated with how slow it is to work with these centralized committees. So if you can set up new models where it's easier for them... Um, you see, for, for example, you see a lot of companies, they're setting up a marketplace or they're leveraging a marketplace that exists like AWS Marketplace or Microsoft has a marketplace. That way, the business executives still can search, try, see their peer reviews, go quickly, but they're not doing it totally in a vacuum. You had mentioned simplifying vendors, but I think one concern maybe is getting like pinned hold into a vendor. Is that So what's the balance there in terms of the simplification of the number of vendors you're working with, but also the concern that you're sort of beholden to a vendor too. Totally. And a lot of companies are already stuck, you know, really with a vendor. Mm -hmm. They've made such great investments there. And, and that's a reality for, for many of our clients. But the way we see this is it's like the Goldilocks issue. Mm -hmm. Like you don't want it to be too much beholden on one vendor, nor too fragmented. Right. Because it's true if you get you know, totally in bed with one vendor and then things aren't going well. It's very hard for you to have any leverage. It's very hard for you to switch. On the other hand, if, if you stay totally away from any strategic partners at all, you're just dealing with a nightmare of integration, cost, managing all these little vendors, all the risk that's involved in all of that. Um, you know, in a down economy, which we likely will see soon, vendors go out of business. Now you're dealing with all of that. You don't really have a trusted, stable partner. Um, and it ends up being very costly and higher risk if you're too fragmented. So a lot of the research we're doing now, it's about how do you find that right balance so that you've got choice and flexibility and you protect yourself, you know, from being at the mercy of this vendor who's jacking up the prices or whatever other challenges you have, mm -hmm. um, but also not having so much extra cost and risk and overhead from just being too fragmented. So one of the economics of technology was it was supposed to automate processes, meaning it was, it was not, it was supposed to allow people to take on larger, more important tasks. But if you look at some of these systems, you know, my, my observation is that there's a lot of manpower being used to maintain it, maintaining the APIs among the systems because of the best of breed strategies, maintaining code that only like Tony knows about and, you know, Joe doesn't know about it. So Tony's got to be there. So in a lot of cases, the promise of, the shift of, to, of human beings to larger problems didn't really fully happen. And as you say, we're going towards a, a, a economic pressures on cost. H how does that wash when, like, that's, that's actually holding it kind of back is that there's an inherent manpower surrounding these systems? So for the, you know, in aggregate, when you think about who's doing all that work and if it's done by a cloud vendor under the covers or not, I, I'll sort of leave that aside for a second. But for an end user company, the, the shift to the cloud has been transformational in terms of the manpower because a lot of the resources that you use for programming or for um, hardware and infrastructure, those are just part of the subscription that you get. So like if I subscribe to AWS or Salesforce or Workday, um, a lot of those technology resources 
they're employing them somehow or they've automated them. But in a way, I don't care, right? I'm just subscribing to the end product. And so a lot of the analysis we've done around the ROI of moving to the cloud shows you do reduce your resources uh, in that way. And over time, what we see is that then on the vendor side, they can be more efficient with those resources. They're getting better economies of scale than most typical companies would, as well as they're very advanced in what they're doing with automation and AI with this huge scale as well. Um, so even if you look at the bigger picture, we do think there's some benefits there, especially with the shift to the cloud. Um, but there's also changes going on uh, in development. For example, we see the rise of low-code development tools. Uh, it's really changed the need for the plumbers, you know, the blue-collar IT, we've sometimes called it, um, in shift of more of the business analysts and the architects and more of what we've called the white-collar IT. Um, and so that's another change that's happening. So, so yes, it is reducing some of the roles, but it's also changing what kinds of skills that people need. Um, and I'd bring back up the outsourcing question too, because what you see with a lot of companies is they want to scale down, but it's too personal if it's your own employees. Um, and this is a case in some ways for an outsourcer where you can have more flexibility and it's not personal, right? It's a relationship with a mega vendor like an Accenture or a TCS. Um, and as needs go down over time, they're managing that. And it's not really your employees. It's not people that you know. Um, and that's how a lot of outsourcing contracts are set up too. And you brought up banking insurance before. I mean, these are legacy systems. Partly they are coming from vendors, partly homegrown and some hybrid of their, I mean, those are hard to cloudize. They're, they're kind of sitting in the bowels of the business trying to just chunk it away. How are they taking on that as it relates to the manpower? Like what are the stages of trying to say, I have to outsource first or I have to move pieces of the cloud? How, how does that work when you have this large anchor that is 10, 20 years old and filled with all the different customizations. Right. So for some for some companies, they actually get huge pressure on them because it's true. The people are retiring. Like your your mainframe experts are retiring. Uh, there's a client that I work with who told me her her mother got a phone call who's been long retired. Could she please come and work on this, you know, technology system? And you know, for some companies, that's a forcing event, right? But sometimes we also see, like you said, it's not going to be done overnight. It's it's going to be more incremental. Um, for a lot of companies with these hefty systems, there are moves like a private cloud or cloud just at the infrastructure level, even public cloud, um, where they're not maybe moving to a SaaS system. So it is more incremental. Uh, it also gives them more control over how they want the exact setup to be. Sometimes companies feel like if they can go with a private cloud, they can balance some of their other concerns like regulatory, like performance that do tend to crop up a lot more in those core systems, especially in industries like financial services. Yeah. So that's part of it. And then, like I said, I, you know, sometimes we see uh, software as a service solutions coming around the fringes or just other new systems coming around the fringes. So they may be surrounding the core. Uh, and over time, that core may be shrinking if they're keeping it in its present format. So when you look at this at like 100,000 feet, are there two, three, four blueprints in your in your mind about if you're in this situation where your legacy systems are holding you back, you've taken action on the front end of your business, but unfortunately, if they're operating at a certain speed and your back end is offering a different speed, you're going to operate the lowest common denominator. This lowest system will sort of dictate the speed of the company at that point in time. What are the two or three, again, four blueprints of, of advice you're giving to clients? 
Sure. So cloud is a, is a huge one, uh, being open-minded and realistic about the cloud. So uh, years ago, there were a lot of concerns about security, regulatory issues. Many of those are solved. In many cases, the cloud is more secure and better adhering to regulatory requirements than what you're doing on site. They're responsible for keeping things evolved in a way that makes sense uh, per new laws or whatever other you know, changes come down the road. Um, so that's one is looking at the cloud and being open-minded. If you have sort of outdated views on the cloud uh, from any country, re really things have changed. Uh, and number two is taking a new look at the landscape of enterprise applications vendors. You know, for a lot of our clients, they do run something like Oracle or SAP, and they view these systems as archaic legacy systems that are holding them back. But in reality, every major applications vendor has changed dramatically in the last five years. They're all offering more modern ways of technology with AI built in. They're investing in AI. They're investing in marketplaces. So taking a fresh look at the package landscape too and being realistic about where you do need to build something versus where there might be a good tool that's already there that you can tap into. Um, those are two main things. Uh, a third thing is really just your whole approach. Uh, one of the things, like you brought up, Jen, earlier about CIOs, you know, exposing your CIOs to things like design thinking and journey mapping and empathy because a lot of times the CIO is just not close enough to what the customer is doing or what the business is doing. And that still plagues a lot of organizations. Um, and then the last thing that I would say is, uh, you know, really changing the whole culture to an agile approach, uh, making everyone in the company think more about how closely linked technology is nowadays for all of our businesses to what we're trying to achieve and being able to work with an okay to fail, happy to experiment, more agile, you know, approach. And that goes for how you budget projects. That goes for how you look at vendors and select vendors. It's pervasive across all elements of, of technology and for the business users too. But th those, I would say, are four fundamental things companies should be doing. And, and important to that last point is, I, if I heard it right, is not that that system is agile or the development of that thing is agile, but from a systems of systems approach, the entire environment is agile. That could include how code is built and maintained, how budgeting is done. I mean, the entire system of systems has to be agile at this point. Exactly. Exactly. You can't just assume your developers work in an agile way, but we still budget annually. It, it doesn't quite work. So we're in April 2019, and we have these different pressures. We have the pressures to, to, to keep up with competitors that may not have this, these same weight on you, on them. We have the pressures of economics coming at us that may, will tell us that, you know, it's going to be harder to grow. Therefore, there'll be pressure on the, on the margins. How long is this going to take to kind of take a step back, look hard at the foundations of the business, and get them to the point in time where they are creating a platform for growth versus holding back the potential for growth? So in reality, it will take years for a lot of large companies to get out of the technical debt that they've built up over so many years. They they can't necessarily do it all at once, uh, though, like I said, there are examples where people basically are trying to start fresh. Uh, I think like a startup, we get a lot of questions like that. But um, what's important is just because you recognize that it's going to take several years doesn't mean you should have like a three, four year blueprint. That's where I see a lot of companies go wrong is like, well, it's going to take three or four years. So let's just make some kind of roadmap about the three or four years. No, it's starting now. It's being agile about it. It's recognizing that you don't know what your business is going to be doing in three or four years. So you don't want to be defining precisely what to do, but more investing in being agile and making some changes now where you can get the biggest benefit out of it. Um, and it can be very industry specific as well as just individual based on where you're 
insured companies experiencing the most friction and the most slowness uh, really from those legacy applications in terms of where exactly you do that? So we have two universes. We have the legacy tech and we have sort of the new tech of AI and automation. Is, is one holding the other one back? Is AI and automation a resolution to the first problem? How do they dance going forward such that companies can take on both problems at the, t- at the same time? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, we see um, companies have these visions for how they want to engage with customers in the future or now, uh, as well as how they can enable these new business models. And AI is the phrase du jour, right? It is just transforming so many pieces of the business. And in many cases, it's legacy systems that are preventing a company from doing what they want to do with regards to AI and how it might impact business and customers. Um, What else we see, though, is that the legacy systems themselves in their modern form they're changing because of AI. A lot of AI and automation is happening inside of these legacy systems and they're working in different ways because of it. So really the shift to AI is twofold. One is AI that's driving a new type of customer engagement. For example, one recent AI scenario that I saw is when you can combine repair work like a service technician with weather data and also automation so that the whole service experience is faster, more efficient use. If there's going to be a big rainstorm coming in, that service tech won't work on that project that day. Um, But there's also AI happening behind the scenes that's really making the systems run better. Uh, A lot of the technology resources, the hundreds and hundreds of technology resources that may be supporting many of these heftier systems, that's going away because of AI and automation. So so it's really pervasive how much it's impacting uh, companies in technology. And it's really both the experience as well as the underlying tech. And in the scenario where AI is a remedy for the legacy systems, I think I'm hearing you say it's a very surgical effort, which is it will take on different piece parts of it and you'll start knocking down the pins one by one. It's not an attempt to have AI overhaul it in a monolithic way. It depends on the approach too, right? So some companies, they may realize their systems are beyond repair and they'll just start fresh. They'll throw things out and they'll just start fresh, um, like ripping the Band-Aid off. But other companies, yes, they can use AI for very specific processes or very specific systems to help improve those processes and get some cost savings, get some efficiencies, really improve the way that those systems are able to work. So out there in the media land and marketing land, um, most of the attention is on all the bright lights of automation and AI and machine learning. There's not a lot of bright lights on this topic, but this topic is has significant gravity. It is holding companies back and or it will free them up. What's the advice to have from an internal marketing standpoint to have people go, this is really a thing and it's not a bad thing. It's not like don't get punished for it, but we really need to put our best and brightest on parts of this problem so we don't make the fundamental mistake of fixing the front end, but the back end is still dictating the terms of how the company works. What I see is it's great to bring examples and bring scenarios to life um, from your own business, but even for surrounding businesses that can really illustrate the importance of it. It's not too hard to think about just our daily lives. Uh, I order something on a website. If I get an email later that says that product's out of stock for the next month and that wasn't like known when I did it off the website, bad experience. Also expensive for the company. They're cleaning up errors. Uh, This happened to me. I was ordering some clothes online, picked them out, got an email like a day later that they were out of stock and some would be never coming back in. 
terrible experience, but also think of how much resource that company is wasting. Whereas if they had just had more real-time information from the get-go, I would have had a great experience and they wouldn't have had to spend all that time cleaning, you know, cleaning up the mistake. You can think of, um, we were talking airline travel, you know, if, if you think of a customer experience, what matters? Well, we want to get there on time and safely. And what that means is crew management and maintenance, repair and operations has to be better. Um, so, you know, very easy to think of ways that the so-called operational systems, sometimes companies think of ERPs and they think of the back office and other operational systems really impact that customer experience. And it often isn't too hard to think of those scenarios. Um, in other cases, you may have real data from your customers. A lot of companies know a lot about what's bugging customers. And you could see, well, it's the return process or, well, it's the inventory or time to ship things or it's that the plane was late, the plane was broken, the in, you know, the in-seat TV didn't work. All these things, you know, have a very direct link with the operational system. So building those use cases and then also uh, helping build these business cases around, yes, it does take a lot of investment to modernize the core, but what's really going to be the return, not only in terms of better experience and better revenue growth, but also in terms of longer term savings on technology and how you can operate more efficiently. But the exclamation point that I think you're putting on that, on that concept is some of these systems are now divorced from the customer experience. They're seen as other and key to your argument is that there has to be that connective tissue because there's real consequences to the lack of modernization here, the lack of speed. But those consequences may not be obvious or even known to people. That, that's the work that has to get done to kind of create the, the burning platform, if you will. Exactly. I, and we, uh, at one of our CX forums recently, we used the idea of the iceberg. That like, if you think that little piece of ice that you see when you're heading towards it is what's there you're in for a big surprise, right? And it's the same kind of a model for enterprise technology is that if you really think that the in-store experience at a retailer with a smart mirror, maybe, you know, tracking, geo-tracking within the store, knows where you are, um, is going to make a wonderful customer experience, you're in for a big surprise because if they can't get the product in the right size, it, it's not good quality, um, you know, numerous other factors that it's those operational systems that are the driver of, uh, then you're in the same situation as that ship who's heading for the iceberg and thinking it's some small piece of ice. So you're going to be running a session in Chicago in our, in our digital transformation forum, and you'll be on stage. You'll finish your presentation. There'll be applause, of course. And Maybe a, a few I, tomatoes, but no, no, <laughs> some no, applause. No. A CI walks up and says, completely get it. You know, I'm a little worried because, you know, this feels like playing defense. How do I get started? What's step one in this journey? What, what, what's your answer? So for a lot of companies, step one is going to be executive sponsorship of the idea because it is emotional. It does require a lot of change. And without that guidance of the executive sponsor, it can oftentimes turn into too many arguments and too many discussions without the right action. Um, some CIOs have great relationships with the executive team. They can work together and have a consistent message. Others don't. Some actually need to message the value of what they do and how they can be relevant to the business because those relationships are already broken um, from the years past. So uh, that's step one for so many of the companies that we work with. Um, but then a very close step two is get, get going, right? Uh, there's various digital studios. You can go experience the new technologies. You want to see what other companies in your industry are doing 
every vendor out there, every services provider, every software vendor, every hardware vendor, they have these labs, these experience centers now. Just go there, you know, check things out. Um, start to explore. You know, it's so easy nowadays with software as a service and other modern technology to just try things out. And so, um, you know, the, the other big piece of this, aside from the cultural change and the executive sponsorship behind that is... Uh, to just get going and break out of that habit of feeling you need to mark down and plan every last detail. Um, and this goes doubly for companies who do RFPs, either because of culture or because of requirements. You, know, you can get totally bogged down in writing up a very prescriptive RFP and you're effectively shutting the door on all of that innovation and all of those new ideas, plus spending a lot of time and money doing so. I'm sure there'll be applause and thank you for joining I hope us today. So. <laughs> Thanks, Victor. Thanks, Thanks. Jen. Master Tech-Driven Innovation at Forrester's Digital Transformation Forums in Chicago, London, and Mumbai. Join our analysts and business technology leaders to hear the trends and challenges that you will face in the coming year. For more information and to reserve your seat, visit for.com slash DT2019. That's forr.com slash DT2019. Thanks for listening.